Hi, I'm Sam, and I'd like to welcome Barry Goldberg, a keyboardist who played for the Electric Flag, Bob Dylan, and many more. So welcome, Barry. How are you doing? Fine, thanks. How are you, Sam? I'm doing just fine. You know, it's a, it's a what, Monday afternoon, and I'm, I'm feeling better than most Mondays, so that's good. <laughs> they call it Blue Monday. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I know you played in the band The Electric Flag. Can you tell me a bit about like how you got involved with that band? Well, was, I was doing session work uh, and working with Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. That was way before your time. And one of the notable recordings was Devil with a Blue Dress. I don't know if you remember that, but it was like a number one hit. And I'm my best friend, Michael Bloomfield, came to New York and presented me with this proposal to start an all-American music band featuring different kinds of American music, blues, R&B, pop, like Phil Spector kind of music, uh, all Motown, Stax, combining all-American music and forming this band with a horn section. And I thought it was really great in the bass of this band would be in San Francisco. So I would have to leave New York and and uh, set up shop in San Francisco. I agreed to do it. And we had everybody in the band, the bass player, the horns, except for a drummer. And we were going to get Billy Monday from the Mothers of Invention. And uh, I was playing a rock and roll show with uh, Smokey Robinson and Wilson Pickett. And Wilson Pickett's drummer was this young kid. And we walked into the theater. The whole theater was rocking. Like, I mean, it was moving from the drums. So Michael looked at it. We looked at each other and said, this is our drummer. So we got, his name was Buddy Miles. And we got Buddy to join the band. And then we all left for San Francisco. And our uh, debut gig was Monterey Pop Festival. That, that's where we were going to debut. So we, that that was our first gig. Yeah, I saw I saw videos of, um, of you guys playing at Monterey pop that was incredible you guys did some great stuff thanks sam yeah well i i know you mentioned um you played with bloomfield a lot um did you know him from a young age like how'd you get to know him well we were in rival bands in high school and we competed for sweet 16 parties and uh sock hops and all those rock and roll teenage dances you know that they had and we also wound up at the same high school we were both asked to leave our prospective high schools and uh, at the time i was going to send high school wound up at bateman which is a private school for delinquents and and uh, after Bateman, it was Central YMCA. The YMCA had another notorious high school downtown Chicago, which Michael and I both attended. And that's how I met Michael. We had known each other in high school. And we would also go down. He's the one that turned me on to the blues on the south side and west side of Chicago to go down and sit in with the great masters and form relationships firsthand and learn the blues firsthand from like Wendy Waters and Howling Wolf and all those guys. Wow. So you really got to see like some of the, the original great blues masters. The original great blues masters, absolutely. Did you ever like talk to them? No, we it became our extended family. Wow. And we became very close with them. We would babysit for their grandchildren or did we ever run errands for them? Did whatever we could to get into their uh 
social community and not only learn about their music, but learn about their ways and their history and a direct link to Robert Johnson. Later on, I got to meet Sunhouse wow. and I did, I did know him. So would you say you were like inspired deeply by like all these, you know, famous like big blues artists? Well, it was a, a special time that never will happen again in Chicago where they all settled, they all came from the South, and they settled in Chicago and started the Chicago blues as we know it. Like, uh, even, there was blues before that, but they were at the pinnacle of, of uh, it was like the, 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 the surgeons of greatness. And we, there were so many of them, uh, of the great ones at that time, and it was blowing minds. And we couldn't believe it was happening right in our own backyard. And we were all from the suburbs and, and you know, upper middle class neighborhoods and we we couldn't believe it we could just go across the, the the lines to the south side and west side which no one ever this was in the 60s no one ever did that before and we did it not not even thinking about what we were doing story in sunhouse uh is when i i went with the butterfield band to play the newport folk festival in 1965 and everyone all the performers stayed in these big houses mansions in newport rhode island and they had cots right next to each other for all the performers to sleep in and there was this older black guy right next to me and he would never leave his little space like and i said i said man come on it's so beautiful here like go out you know you might meet some young folkies and and you know beautiful girls and so, so i said no need to he kept saying no need to he had everything he needed right on his little cot. He had his little pen knife, his transistor radio, all his important belongings. And I said, what's your name? And he goes, Sun House. So I'd actually bunked, you know, next door and the next bunk was Sun House. Wow. And it, it, didn't, it didn't hit me until later just of how important that was. Yeah, that that's kind of he he was quite a monumental blues guy. That that's pretty interesting. And I I know I know you just said you played at Newport and you you were actually playing with Dylan when he went electric, right? Yes, there was uh, I arrived with the Butterfield band and Paul's producer, Paul Butterfield's producer, Paul Rothschild was there and was very adamant about uh, any keyboard players with the band. At that time, he didn't want keyboards, so I was without a job and stranded a long ways from Chicago. And Dylan was there to, to do his gig. And he had known Michael. Michael played on his session, mm -hmm. a monumental session with like a Rolling Stone a few months before. And Bob said, I don't know if my band's going to show up. You think the Butterfield Band or a few of the guys from the Butterfield Band would play with me? And Michael said, yeah. And Brian Barry's a really great keyboard player. He could do that really easy. So Bob said, would you like to play with me tomorrow night? And I went from no gig to the big gig. Uh, and, and being so bummed out and freaked out and nothing to do to one of the great moments of my career. Yeah, I know um, that that specific gig was kind of controversial with Dylan going electric at like the, the folk festival. Was there really like as much like booing and stuff as some people have said? There was half booing and half acceptance. Mm -hmm. uh, the folkies felt really threatened 
and the end of their era was was coming you know and the height of folk music was was you know going down a little bit now and they felt very threatened and, and betrayed by bob and what bob did he took the next step in his career and what he did was create folk rock at that moment mm-hmm. yeah i i know i heard um the, the version of Maggie's Farm you guys played, and I was just kind of like in awe. I was like, wow, this is at a folk festival? That's, that you know, that's really brave of them to do that. It, we were on a mission. You know, we were like gangsters on a mission. Bob was our leader of the gang, like, you know. Mm-hmm. And we just blazed on through. Michael turned up to nine, I think, you know, and we just did our rock and roll and blasted, you know, <laughs> Just blasted him, and uh, that's how it began, the electric folk, electric rock. Wow. So did you get to know Bob Dylan at all after that? Oh, yeah. Uh, Bob and I became really good friends, and later on he produced my solo album uh, that I had out on Atco Records, and uh, that's a whole other story. But uh, Bob and I are, are, are very, you know, not, not best friends, but we we do talk. We, we haven't spoken in a long time, but we're, we're friends. Wow, that's nice. Yeah, that, that's really nice. And I, I know going to that album you were talking about, Um, well, maybe not that album, but I know you did the album Two Jews Blues with um Bloomfield. And like personally, as like a, a fellow Jewish person, I'm just wondering how like being Jewish affected your musical career. Well, I, I was very adamant about not changing my name. And so was Michael. And I had a very famous uncle, Arthur J. Goldberg, who, who was who didn't change his name either. And uh, he became a Supreme Court Justice and ambassador to the United Nations. And I said, if it's good enough for him, and look at Benny Goodman, you know, and Buddy Rich and, and all those people, I'm going to hang on. To, and, and later I realized, you know, why Bob changed his name and a few other people I knew, because uh, it did limit our audience. A lot of people from, from the South radio stations, they wouldn't play our records. Really? Like we were Jewish, yeah. So w- would you say, like, being Jewish, I, I guess it did, I guess, um, affect how, how your radio play was, but did it, like, help define your musical style? Uh, I played a lot of minor keys, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of the minor, and uh, there was a lot of Yiddishkeit in my playing, and uh, it just couldn't help it. You know, the minor, the dirge, the, the down, uh, most of my songs were I wouldn't say depressing, but they weren't happy songs. You know, they they carried that with it. Wow. And I believe I believe that that that's that's true. It's just inside of me. Like I had a big hit song, number one song, and it was all minor songs, and and the lyrics were also written by another Jewish uh, composer named Jerry Goffin, mm-hmm. who was with Goffin and King Carol King's ex-husband and it was called i've got to use my imagination to keep on keeping on wow so you know if if that's not a down song i don't know what is <laughs> wow yeah so did did you i i guess you did play with like a, a lot of jewish people um was that like intentional or was that just where you were it's just what it was just where I, where i was are you a dj yeah i mean i i did more of it last year um but I I just 
like interviewing a bunch of musicians. I, I find it really, you know, really neat. I've actually talked to, you know, quite a few people you've played with. I'm kind of in a Bob Dylan obsession right now. So it, it's kind of directed me to, um yeah, a lot of people who've played with him. Yeah, well, that's, there's only one Bob Dylan. And if you look at his body of work and you realize the lyrics and, and what he created, like, and, and all of his songs, there's nothing, there's no one that can ever touch him, like, you know, poet, poetry or however you want to look at it, you know. He created something that was unto itself and then would never be touched, like, by anyone, including Hendrix. You just can't compare the two. You can't compare anyone to anyone when when they reach that level of greatness. They're just great. Yeah, it's quite impressive. I, I'll be the first person to say that. Yeah, that, that's true. So you played with Hendrix as well, then? Yes, uh, I played with Hendrix when his name was Jimmy James. Really? And and he had a band called the Blue Flames, and I was playing in the Greenwich Village with John Hammond band, John Hammond Jr. Mm-hmm. So how'd you get and that? Yeah, Jimmy would come in every night and sit in with us. And you just played with him from there? Yeah, for a whole week. Wow, wow. That that sounds like quite an experience. Well, you knew right away that he was one of the greatest, if not the greatest, guitarist. Mm-hmm. So you really got around then. You played with a bunch of people. <laughs> yeah, I, I played with a lot, including Jerry Lewis and Chuck Berry and all the, the old, older greats, too. Oh, wow. Well, I, I guess a lot of these people you've played with are like blues musicians, right? Uh, a lot of them are, are predominantly blues guys. What What was it about the blues that like interested you? Was it just that it was like right in your backyard, or was there something else? It was a hypnotical, mystical uh, music that was sort of created a spell, and it went directly to the heart. There was no, you know, filters. It got to me more than any other of the, of the music that that was around. I love rock and roll. I love Little Richard and all those great people, Chuck Berry, uh, Jerry Lee was one of my idols, but Otis Spann was a whole other thing, and Muddy Waters, they created spells, like, and when Howling Wolf started howling, you know, it was was completely different kind of uh, feeling, and that was the feeling that I really liked the most out of all the music that they played. Mm-hmm. So, from what moment did you know you like really wanted to play the blues? Uh, I didn't, I know, but I didn't want to not play the other kinds of music as well. I mean, there's other music. I later I got to play with Phil Spector and his Wolf Sound and uh, the other music that really turned me on. But 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 none of it really just struck like the blues did. Mm-hmm. You know, it just when when you hear that shuffle, when you hear that, uh, when you see a pretty girl and she's doing the boogie. You know, that's that's it for me. Like you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hey, the blues are something else, right? A lot of people. A lot of people play it, a lot of people listen to it, and that's for good reason. It's a pretty great genre of music. It really is. It's it's the music that's connected directly to the heart. Mm-hmm. Well, w- what age did you like start playing music at? Uh, four or five. Wow, so you started really young. Yeah, my mother was a keyboardist. She mm. played a real mean barrel house piano, and she was also on the Yiddish stage, too. She was a a child actress, and uh, 
she 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 had a left hand that, that would never give up like you know it was like really really cool i could never get her left hand huh. wow so did you like did you start playing from your mother or did you like get a, a teacher no i never had lessons i tried to take lessons but at, even at an early age i sort of had my own style and i didn't want to change i didn't want to be a generic keyboard player like there's so many you know that they, they play uh perfect and you know, they play perfectly and and I, I sort of had a, a little bit of funkiness in my playing that I didn't want to lose, like, you know, and, and it, it was a simpler style. And I think that's why I was able to survive as a uh, as a keyboardist, uh, like a, uh, a renowned keyboard player. And because of my style was so different, it wasn't like the rest. Mm-hmm. So, and you, you'd credit that partially to not having a teacher? Not having a teacher and going ahead and developing my own style, learning from learning from the masters. I mean, my teachers were like Otis Fan and Johnny Johnson, who taught me an amazing left hand. Like, and uh, you know, I would I would play alongside of them, and they were like, that that, that was my way of, of of finding a teacher. Wow. Yeah. You you must have you must have gotten to to learn a lot of music from all those all those incredible musicians that you, yeah, you got to like see and, and talk to. Well, it rubs off on you. Mm-hmm. You know, when you play with someone like a Dylan or a Hendrix, you know, the magic rubs off on you and, and you, and it's with you forever. And you develop not, not, not an ego, but you develop a sense of greatness inside of you as well. A little of it, it's not going to be a Dylan. It's not going to be a Hendrix, but a little of that rubs off on you. Mm-hmm. What what like musical moments would you say have entirely defined your music career? Well, it's really uh, being a part of Phil Spector and Wall of Sound and listening to that playback coming back at you and it sort of like uh, touches the, the heavens. Like, you know, he was uh, Pop Wagner, you know, and he was like, uh, he created music that was next to God, you know, for me, uh, sitting in with Muddy Waters. And the fact that one day after months of trying and look, you know, the piano was at the bottom of the stage and Muddy was on top of the stage. And Muddy would always notice when Otis, when Otis Spam wasn't playing and he would look down and sort of scowl. But one day after months of playing and, and he was so kind to let me keep keep doing it. You know, I got it right, and he smiled. Wow. And I think when he's smiling down on me, I think that was next to my son's bar mitzvah. That was like the greatest moment. I did a gig at the Pantages Theater with Stephen Stills and Neil Young. Oh, wow. That's... And that, that just playing behind Neil was a religious experience. Yeah, it sounds like it. That I, and I know you you still work with Stephen Stills, right? You're you're doing the rides together. Yeah, we had a band, the rides. We, when COVID came, it sort of ruined everything. And then uh, my best friend and, and manager of the band passed away, mm. and that was also Stephen's manager, and that sort of just broke everything up. But we had two CDs together, and Kenny Wayne Shepherd is an amazing, amazing blues guitar player. Yeah, well, uh, we had Stevie Ray Vaughan's drummer, and uh, so, you know, 
that was a great experience too, playing those big venues and being treated like a rock star because of Steven, mm-hmm. you know, was was better than having to set up my own keyboard and schlepping around, you know, my own gear and having a sound guy and a keyboard tech of my own. Uh, I got to experience that that luxury of, of being, well, a rock star for a while. And that ended and, and uh, now I'm back home again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that, that must have been a, a really neat experience to, I guess, like change into rock star Barry, you know? Yeah, it was, and, and believe me, I loved every minute of it. Yeah, you know, it was it was great. Just playing, you get to touch more people. You know, you get to play for more people, and it's alive. And people come out of the woodwork, like with with my old records, and you know, they make me feel really good. And, and it was a good time. And my wife was with me, and um, you know, we're partners. We've been married for fifty-two years. Wow! Congratulations. And, and thanks. And it's just a good thing. It was a great thing for me. But when you roll into a town and and the, the managers of the hotels come out to greet you, you know, why not, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that sounds like, you know, a, a great time. And so does the rest of your musical journey. It's all been so interesting to hear about it. And, you know, thank you so much for talking to me, Barry. It's just, it's so cool to hear not, not only your blues stories, but like your, your just music stories, playing with Dylan. Wow, that's that's just pretty incredible. So thank you so much for, for giving me the chance to talk to you about it. Sam, I'm glad you're doing what you're doing, Sam. Thank you for doing this and keep on keeping on and you're on the right track, kid. Thank you. Yeah, I, you know, I, I hope to. I really love music, so getting to hear about it is just, it, it's great. I, I love it. <laughs> well, keep keep doing it, because we need more of you. I'm Sam, and I hope you enjoyed that interview with Barry Goldberg, a keyboardist who played with blues bands like The Electric Flag. He played with Jimi Hendrix and so many more. So if you enjoyed that interview, make sure to check out my back pages on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any other podcasting platform to listen to more great interviews just like this one.